Please pray with me. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight. For thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, welcome to Christ Church West Shore. Uh, I'm the Reverend Sean Templeton, vicar of Lakewood Anglican, and I bring you greetings from Lakewood, from uh, the other clergy, and our mission council and congregation. It's good to be with you. Um, whenever I come back, it's a bit of a homecoming, and um, we are a, a church that you sent, and we're doing well. We're doing well, so thank you for your prayers, for your continued support. Um, we're doing our best in this pandemic, as you are, I see, and the Lord is blessing us. We're actually adding to our number in the middle of a pandemic, praise God. Um, I always joke with Gene because he always gives me rotten texts, preach on, and um, not that any scripture is rotten, although this one, there's some literal sense of that in the text itself. Um, the scripture here in Habakkuk deals with serious things. And so I'm going to start out with a serious illustration. Um, back when I was in college, I did some work on, in ethics. I'm a philosophy major, amongst other things. And one of the things that I studied was military ethics for a while. Um, and one of the things that stuck with me studying military ethics was the topic of torture. I don't know if you remember back in, um, I'm sure most of you do, back when we were first going into Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, there was the issue of torture and the, the um, ethics of it. And so one of the things that has stuck with me after studying that was a restriction placed on torture, not from the, not from the side of the one being tortured, but from the side of the torturer. And here's the argument that while even if you could come up with a valid reason to conduct torture upon someone to extract information, that the damage done to the soul of the torturer is unable to be undone, and therefore it's unjust. In a sense, today's text is dealing with that level of ethic, not just what we do, but who we are. And ultimately, we're all given a choice throughout our life to choose to be people of faith or people of power. There's no middle ground between those two. We are either those who are following our Lord, Jesus Christ, as a person of faith, or we're following ethics dictated by power. As you've undoubtedly heard, because I know Gene well enough to know that he's gone into some of this. The prophet Habakkuk is in a time that's very challenging for God's people. Um, most scholars think that he would have witnessed the battle of Carchemish, where the conquerors of Israel, the northern kingdom, um, the Assyrian people who had conquered the northern kingdom, are actually con conquered themselves by the Babylonian Empire, right? So King Nebuchadnezzar, you've heard that name probably. Um, and Nebuchadnezzar, the, the kingdom of Babylon, not just didn't only take over Israel, but then took over Judah, the southern kingdom. 
The book of Habakkuk, therefore, is full of lament. And it's easy to see why. Because of what the prophet's going through. First of all, he's lamenting the fact that his own leaders are corrupt. That the people who are supposed to be leading God's people themselves are corrupt. And he asks the question throughout the book, why do the wicked prosper? That's a perennial question, isn't it? Why do the wicked prosper? Why do we look around and see people who do the wrong thing seem to do so well, right? The answer he gets is not one that he expects or one that he wants. God doesn't answer that question, but rather tells Habakkuk that the wicked will be punished and the innocent will be avenged, that God is just. And so as we look at this text, we look at the direction that God gives Habakkuk himself, and that is don't concern yourselves with those people. Concern yourself with you. Because your soul is at stake. Whether you're a person of power or a person of faith. Whenever we look at a text like this, we have to ask at least two questions. Number one, what's God's word saying to the original audience? And who's the original audience here in the book of Habakkuk? Go ahead, shout it out. The Jews, yeah. Most specifically, though, it's actually the prophet himself, right? God is giving Habakkuk these answers, and he then is to be a prophet to God's people. So we have to ask ourselves, what's going on in the original context? And then we can ask ourselves, what is God saying to the church and to you and me as the people of God? It's really important that we don't skip to that second step. And good exegesis. I chose the psalm, Psalm 73 today, the second half of the psalm, because I think it must summarize what Habakkuk is feeling. Right? Did you catch Psalm 73, beginning with verse 13? How does it start? I said, surely in vain have I cleansed my heart and washed my hands in innocence. All the day long I've been afflicted and chastened every morning. Indeed, had I spoken as they do, then I would have betrayed the generation of your children. When I sought to understand this, it was too hard for me. It was too hard for me. But notice the psalm resolves as we go along. And finally culminates with verse 28. But it is good for me to hold fast to God, to put my trust in the Lord God, and to speak of all your works in the gates of the city of Zion. That's Habakkuk's call to look at Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 2, how he cries out. It's not in today's text, but it's earlier in the book. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear, or cry to you, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Do you see the the parallels there? The 
prophet, Habakkuk, scholars think, was probably a priest or a Levite himself. So he was in the middle of this corruption going on. And God's solution is not what he wants to hear, but rather things are going to get worse before they get better. Oh yes, God sees the error and the corruption in his people, but he's not going to punish it with doings from righteous people. He's going to punish it by wicked people, people that are even worse than they are, the Babylonians. One of the things that the Babylonians were known for is their drunkenness, especially in the upper echelons of leadership. They weren't just corrupt, but they were a constantly inebriated people, drunk on wine. We see this in Scripture itself. Those of you that know the Old Testament, think to the book of Daniel, chapter 5, right? What's going on in Daniel, chapter 5? It has to do with the Babylonians. Does anybody know? Yeah, go ahead. They're writing on the wall. And what's going on during King Belshazzar's feast? They're getting wasted, right? (laughs) And and as they're getting drunk and feasting, this hand appears and starts writing on the wall about the fact that their kingdom will come to an end. And so here we see Habakkuk echoing that with his five woes, actually, that God gives to Habakkuk. Now, woe here can also be translated alas. And so it's not like God is taking great joy in the fact that the Babylonians are such wicked people. That's not it at all. But he's saying woe to them, for their judgment is going to come. And it's not going to be pretty. There's five woes. If you're someone who likes to mark in your Bible, um, I would advise you to um, take out a pencil and, and mark these sections. You can see them if you have an eye for it, but starting with verse 6 is the first woe, verses 6 through 8. Woe to the plunder. And if you don't get these verses down right away, I'm going to come back to them at each point here. Verses 6 through 8, woe to the plunder. Verses 9 through 11, woe to those who wickedly gain security. Third woe, woe to sin, the sinfully violent builder. Verses 12 through 14. Woe to the sinfully violent builder. The fourth woe. Woe to he who shames others for his own glory. Verses 15 through 17. Woe to he who shames others for his own glory. And the fifth woe. Woe to him who worships his craft. That's verses 18 through 20. Woe to him who worships his craft. You see, each one of these woes starts with the word woe. And let's jump right in and look at the first one. Woe to the plunderer, verses 6 through 8. Woe to the one who loads up on riches and pledges. What's that mean? Well, you've probably heard the saying, to the victor goes the spoils, right? There is no time where that was more true than in the ancient world. To the victor goes the spoils, right? And... You know, you lost, when you lost a battle in the ancient world, you lost everything. The best thing that could happen to you was that you might be enslaved. But we're talking plunder, rape, looting, destruction of the city itself. You know, there's no, like, surrender in the ancient world, okay? At least not usually. 
And here God says, woe to the plunderer, woe to the one who loads up on riches and pledges. So what someone might do is rather than kill you or take you into outright slavery, instead they would use finances to enslave you. So they would say, well, you can live, but you're going to farm this section of a vineyard, for example, and you're going to give 90% of the yield to me. You see, what does that leave? That leaves the person working and starving and at the mercy of the victor. Woe to the man who heaps up riches and pledges. Let's look at the next one. Woe to him who gains security and comfort by evil. Look at verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest high and be safe from the, rich, from the reach of harm. The Lost Gardens of Babylon... Has anybody heard of that? It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. There were walls hundreds of feet thick for protection. And the legend goes that on each one of the bricks that composed the wall of the palace, the king's name was inscribed. That sent a powerful message. Who was in control? The king, right? In addition to the walls, there were great hanging gardens, a very sophisticated irrigation system that archaeologists have since found, lush, thick gardens, corridors of great space, great wealth, but it was ill-gotten. Verse 10, you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, says verse 11, and the beam from the woodwork respond. The cutting off of many peoples. The word used here could mean many things. The Babylonians were shameless, even by ancient standards, in their torture of peoples. And their immediate aim was to conquer and subjugate for their own glory for their own glory, to set peoples against themselves. It was a particularly vicious empire. Those are the people who are coming to punish the corrupt Judah, kingdom of Judah. Woe number three. Woe to the sinfully violent builder. Verse 12 through 14. Look at verse 12. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Woe to him who builds a town of blood. One of the ways that the ancient Babylonian Empire operated was to um, just outright kill those that opposed to them. Again, as part of their brutality, to build things on not just fear, but literally the blood of their enemies. Now, those of you that know how the Old Testament uses the term blood, blood doesn't, it's not just a physiological thing like we think of blood, right? That runs through your veins, through your body. But it had a spiritual component to it. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, think about what happens when Cain kills his brother Abel. What cries out to God? The blood. The blood. 
And in the Old Testament law, there's even rules about what you do with animal blood, right? You can't consume it, for example, for it's the life force. It's something given by God. Woe to the person who sinfully builds with violence. Woe number four. Woe to him who shames others for his glory. Look at verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. What's going on here? This is a little bit more complicated to understand, um, only because we're not part of that culture. But one of the ways that Babylon operated was to intensely shame their conquered to not just use force, but to use shame itself to rule over them. Once again here, the king's inebriation, his drunkenness, is, is mentioned. The image of drinking. Not just because of drinking, however, but to bring others to shame, to see their nakedness, to profit by their shame. Look at the fifth woe, verses 18 through 20. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him, woe to him, who says a wooden thing to a wooden thing, awake. The Old Testament is full of the mockery of those who worship idols, right? Psalm 135 is an example. Jeremiah 521 is another example. Look them up in your spare time. I don't have time to cite them specifically beyond citing them here today um, in the sermon to read them to you. God points out how foolish idol worship is. And he reminds Habakkuk that he sees that. And that he sees all this injustice that goes with it. And yet look at where this reading ends. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. So woe to the Babylonians, woe specifically to the people who commit these acts, to the persons who commit these acts. But how does this apply to the church, and how does it apply to the Christian today? That's a little harder. I think it's helpful to actually reverse the woes And start with the last one and work back to the beginning. You see, in a very real way, idolatry is the pinnacle of pride. It is idolatry that is embraced by the person of power rather than the person of faith. You've all, I'm sure, heard sermons on the Ten Commandments. And when we talk about the first commandment, when we talk about idolatry, we don't necessarily struggle with things that we make of wood and metal today, right? But you've all heard sermons on on how we make idols in our own lives. The work of our own hands, it can literally be our work, it can be our businesses, it can be things that we fashion, things that we take great pride in, it can be our own own genius that's God-given, our own minds, right? We can make We can be proud and make idols out of all those things. But ultimately, what that's doing is it's turning away from God and away from being a person of faith and towards being a person of power, trusting in ourselves. 
and, and the things that we've created. Again, morning prayer daily in the Book of Common Prayer starts with the last verse of this passage, and it's not coincidental. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. It's to remind us that the Lord is in the temple, not we ourselves. The other woes are interesting too. Let's look at three and four. Woe to him who shames others for his glory, and woe to the sinfully violent builder. What are both those about? They're both about leveraging power, aren't they? To shame others for glory. This is actually very pertinent today. Call it what you will. We live in a society that is increasingly doing this. Whether you want to call it political correctness, whether you want to call it gotcha culture of politics, taking a a clip or a photo from the past, whether you want to call it memes, it shows up in all sorts of ways in what's now being called cancel culture. How often we see that happening, right? And a person's entire life is wrecked by the appearance of a photo or something that he or she said. Just six days ago, Boeing's um, communications chief abruptly resigned because he had the audacity 33 years ago to say that he didn't believe that women should serve in combat. Now, think about what you will on that. You can be for that or against that. But the point is this, taking someone's phrase from 33 years ago and shaming him to the point of destroying his career and resigning, is that right? No, that's engaging in what scripture here is talking about, using someone's nakedness, uncovering their sin to shame them, to shame them for your advantage. At the, in the same, at the same time, we have to ask ourselves, how do I participate in that? Because it's easy to do so, right? It's easy to do so. Woe to the sinfully violent builder. Well, most of us aren't literally profiting off of other people's blood. It does happen in our culture, right? The Christian need no, look no further than the abortion industry. How is that not literally profiting off of people's blood? And complicity in that. The fact that that's become acceptable and and not even talked about as much as it used to be. Woe to such people. Woe to the wicked. Woe to the sinfully violent builder. Woe to those who thrive off of extortion and manipulation of other people, who destroy other people for their own gain, who build their own security out of wicked gain, back to the second woe. Now, there's nothing wrong with honorable gain and security, right? We build lives that are secure out of good work and honorable work. But it's a different matter when it's at the cost of somebody else. Some of you might remember the show The Sopranos. It was out in the early 2000s. Does anybody remember that show? Well, it was on HBO, so it wasn't you know, super widely distributed. But think to any of the mob shows, right? 
And what's one of the things that come up in the mob shows or movies? You see this great disparity between the main actor's personal life at home and his life at work, right? He's all sweet and kindness at home, lives in this beautiful, in the case of the Sopranos, this beautiful suburban neighborhood, right? Beautiful wife, beautiful daughter, you know, might even go to church, might even go to mass. But then he goes to work, and it's all sorts of sordid things, strippers, right? Um, uh, All sorts of murder going on, all sorts of things. And one of the points that that show makes, and it's interesting, as a secular show, you see this, in TV, is that we can't compartmentalize evil, that we can't keep our work life separate from our home life, that eventually, because of the common corruption of the soul, one seeps into the other and falls into the other. You see, our worship of power, being a person of power, will ultimately undermine being a person of faith, if you allow it to do so. 19th century um, commentator and scholar uh, Percy from Oxford says this very short line. He says, There is an inner rottenness and decay in what seemed so strong and majestic. And so that's something the Christian must guard against. That in his or her heart, there's not an inner rottenness going on that's tearing apart what God is trying to build. Because eventually it all comes crashing down. Woe to the plunderer. Woe to the person who lives by power. For these are all contrary to God's law. To do harm, and they do harm to the person committing them, as well as to the person to whom they're committed. Today's passage asks us to examine our own lives. Now it's true. We have all been saved by Jesus Christ's blood. We all stand forgiven of these things. And yet the challenge to us is to be people, to be persons of faith and to run from a lifestyle of manipulation and power because the two are not compatible There's no middle ground. You can't claim to be a Christian, to be a person of faith, and then employ the tools of Satan. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, The Allegory of Love, the descent to hell is easy. And those who begin by worshiping power soon worship evil. The descent to hell is easy. Those who begin by worshiping power Soon worship evil. So I want to ask you, and I think the text asks us, where are you in these things? Where are this power? Are you a person of power or are you a person of faith? Are you a person of power or a person of faith in your politics? Are you a person of power or a person of faith in your business practices and ethics? Are you a person of power or are you a person of faith in your relationships with other people? Are you a person of power or a person of faith in your life? Don't think that you can grant accommodation to be a person of power 
if you call yourself a Christian. Lest it drag you down and cause you to collapse. Woe to you if you don't heed Habakkuk's warning. And be wary of people who use those tools. When you see lawlessness, when you see violence, when you see power, usually you can know a tree by its fruit. Amen.